Section 4 of The Spring Song by Forrest Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 At the Window. And a boy leans over a lighted window sill, his head on his arm. Like a white moth, his thought flies into the night. John Alford. There was no moon, and the last faint glimmer of a prolonged twilight concealed more than it revealed. Pan and Syrinx, the two stable cats, glided like ghosts from their hiding place, pausing guiltily every yard or two as they crossed the lawn, bent on secret deeds that would never be divulged, seeking the shadows and moving forward, stealthily, vanishing at last into the darkness. Presently, from that darkness, there arose two unearthly screams, blood-chilling, horrible, then silence sinister and profound. Those dreadful shrieks had brought a watchful, astonished pouncer to the window, indignant at suspected immoralities and lawless, possibly criminal joys. His round eyes searched the night, but could discover nothing. Pouncer was on the side of respectability and the police. He could never have even superficial dealings with Pan or Syrinx. Light shone in the windows of three rooms, two on the ground floor and one higher up. It was not the blazing light of gas, but the subdued, ruddy glow of shaded lamps. In one of these lower rooms, Canon Annesley sat at a table littered with books and papers. Before him was a volume of the Golden Bough, and he turned the leaves rapidly, looking for a marked passage, which, when he found it, was not the one he wanted. In another room, Aunt Caroline was writing a letter to her sister, telling of the arrival of the children, of all the events of the past day. Her pen raced on almost without a pause, and sometimes a smile flickered across her face. She enjoyed writing letters, and made a hobby of it. Certain of her correspondents were even slightly irritated by the promptitude with which she replied to their epistles, a promptitude that left them in the perpetual condition of owing Caroline a letter, no matter how frequently they might discharge their debt. The third lighted room was that of Miss Johnson, and Miss Johnson was in bed. Beside her on a table was a large pile of manuscript. The manuscript was entitled Be True, Fond Heart, and Miss Johnson was lingering over that portion of it, which dealt with the final explosion of the long-concealed passion of her hero. Miss Johnson, deeply attached to propriety, was indeed wondering if Reginald were not a little too passionate. Of course, he was dying, and on deathbeds, if anywhere, surely one might let oneself go. But what would Canon Annesley think? Miss Johnson turned again to the passages which had awakened these doubts, and the only drawback to her enjoyment was the fact that the lamp was smelling. Barbara and Anne were asleep, but in the boys' room, Edward lay on his back and talked into the darkness. To him, out of the darkness, came the reluctant voice of Palmer, growing drowsier and drowsier, and sometimes ceasing altogether. I wonder if they'd allow us to have a little cricket practice on the lawn. We might be able to rig up some kind of net. What? Ugh. Oof. What do you say? Nothing. 
spoiled ground. I say, Dorset. No answer. Dorset, Palmer, wake up. Not asleep. What do you want? Lazy brute. I don't feel a bit sleepy. I'm going to have a smoke. There was a scratching sound, the flare of a match, and then the red glow of a cigarette. What about slinging hammocks and sleeping outside if this weather keeps up? Rather a lark, don't you think? I say, you are a rotter. I believe you've gone off to sleep again. Oh, of course, if you don't want to talk. In the room from which Pouncer had looked out a minute or two ago, Griff was now at the window. He leaned across the sill, listening to the strange sounds of the night. From somewhere far away came the harsh, monotonous cry of a corncrake. There was a slight rustle in the ivy below him, perhaps a bird, perhaps a rat. Then came a low whisper that might have been the wind, but that seemed to come from miles and miles away. It was like the sigh of a sleeper bound by enchantment, scarce distinguishable from silence. Griff was extraordinarily sensitive to sounds. The whole of life seemed to come to him in a woven pattern of music. Even through sleep, the slightest noise could reach him, and a very little noise would awaken him. The values of these sounds altered. Now and then, they ceased to be mere patterns, became articulate, and he listened to what they said. Words that were not actual words, but only the spirits of words, for he could never have written them down impressed themselves, as if secretly, upon a portion of his brain, and gave birth to all kinds of thoughts. And now, when everyone had gone to bed, the old house had awakened, and he could hear it creaking and murmuring, as if each brick and board had found a restless tongue. Outside there were other voices, weaving thin, whistling tunes, which detached themselves from the low ground hum that never ceased. That flapping, leathery noise came from the wings of a bat. It was very low, but, while it lasted, it was loud enough to blot out completely this other ghostly sound moving in the air about him, now high up, now passing close to the ground, now receding and again drawing near. And at last, he could make out many voices singing together, the green, slender voices of the wood, and this is what they seemed to say. What is this coming that troubles our ancient peace with faint thrillings of spring, of music and joy? Who has found old-time power to awake, to release the spirits of earth? Who is this human boy? He who would lead us to shake off old memories of grief and a life that had wavered and sunk like a failing well back in the darkness of earth, like the sap in the leaf that yellows and withers in autumn. What is the spell he has found? Ancient gods of dim woodland places, rise from your long, sad sleep. Ye spirits of water and land, Shake out the dead leaves from your hair. Rise and unveil your faces. The frozen winter is past. The spring is at hand. 
Not these dull words, certainly, but something of which they are but a weak and uncouth symbol he heard. Though, whether the voices were within him or without, he did not know. Pouncer, who had already retired to bed half a dozen times and made a great show of falling asleep, was secretly intrigued by this curious vigil of his master and came again to the window. He also leaned over the sill, but there was really nothing to be seen. He gave a very small bark in order to scare away imaginary robbers, should Griff be thinking of that, then returned to his slumbers, sleeping with eyes and mouth and nose, but with ears wide enough awake. A clock chimed midnight, and Griff, he knew not why, began to think of Mr. Bradley. He wondered if he were playing now in the church, and could see him in imagination, his wild silver hair, floating loose in the starlight, while the organ sang and thundered. The idea appealed to him. If only he had been certain that Mr. Bradley was really there, he would have crept out of the house at once. The thought stirred in him a spirit of adventure, which the plans of Edward, Jim, and the others left cold. He was haunted by something vaguely sinister, something fantastic, and a little mad, which the organist's appearance had suggested to him. What it was, he could not tell. But that afternoon it had made him uneasy, a very little uneasy, without being actually afraid. He felt wakeful and rather restless. He had a curious, excited sense of being surrounded by marvelous things. If Pouncer had begun to talk, if the mirror on the wall, which still glimmered dimly in the half-darkness, had begun to sing its reedy, silvery rhymes, he would perhaps not have been greatly astonished. At any rate, he thought he would not. The cool summer night seemed to stream into his soul. He loved it. He loved the dim, shadowy trees, the stars, the sky. Loved them in a way he loved people at certain moments, with the desire to put his arms about them and kiss them. Unconsciously, he loved the spirit that was behind them, that great eternal mother who sang to him while he was waking and through his dreams. He knew the story of Tobias and his dog and the angel, and he longed for the angel to come. The angel with a great rustling of splendid wings. But he would rather have a smaller angel, one about his own size, one like Tobias himself in the Perugino picture at home, from which he had learned the story. He would play on his silver flute for a signal, and Griff would go down to meet him. He wondered what his name would be. The only angel names he knew were Michael and Raphael and Gabriel. It was Raphael who had come to Tobias. His angel would perhaps be Michael. The story was written somewhere in the Bible though he had never been able to find it. His mother had told him that it was only in old Bibles, and he had never found one old enough. To be sure, his dog was not a bit like the dog in the picture, and he was not like Tobias. But what matter? He wondered if the angel would be frightened of Pouncer, supposing he were a very young angel. Most people were at first. 
and he laughed a little as he imagined their meeting, for Pouncer would be sure to want to examine the wings. Then he yawned, stretched himself, and making a bound onto the bed, slid between the cool white sheets. Next moment, there was another bound and a dull thud. Ugh! said Griff, for most of the breath had been knocked out of him. You can't get under, you know, he expostulated, as Pouncer pulled at the bedclothes with his forepaws. We'll be far too hot. A compromise was effected by everything but a sheet sliding onto the floor, and very soon Griff grew drowsy. The wind had arisen a little, and he could hear the faint soughing of the trees, a lulling, dreamy music. Then, just as he was dropping asleep, he heard another music, quite distinctly, and if it had not been that something seemed to hold him back, he would have sprung out of bed. For what he had heard, whether dreaming or waking, was the low, clear note of a flute. End of section four.